and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Alfry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rebecca Giblin, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Melbourne Law School and Director of the Intellectual Property Research Institute of Australia. We will discuss her article, Are Contracts Enough? An Empirical Study of Author Rights in Australian Publishing Agreements, which she co-authored with Joshua Uvarash and will be published in the University of Melbourne Law Review. So welcome to the show, Rebecca, and or rather, welcome back to the show, Rebecca, because you're one of the first people who I interviewed for Ipsodexit. That's right. I think it was episode five or six, something like that, which just feels generations ago. <laughs> Indeed, because now we're up at episode, I believe you will be episode 531. Ooh. So, <laughs> yeah, and I'm really excited to have you back because as you know, and as I think a lot of people know, you're one of my favorite scholars and in particular, one of my favorite copyright scholars. And this is, I think, a really interesting and really important paper, which you know, on the surface is about Australian copyright law, but really has a lot to say, I think, to copyright law scholars everywhere. So, I mean, I wonder if you could just start by talking a little bit about how publication contracts work with respect to copyright, specifically with respect to the kind of publication contracts you're talking about in this piece. Yeah, so what we're really concerned about here is publishing contracts, uh, so between authors and publishers. And maybe I can actually give a little bit of background about how this uh, study fits into the rest of our work over here. I head up something called the Authors Interest Project, which is about, you know, it's really centres around the question of what if we actually took authors' interests seriously instead of, you know, um, allowing them to be used as stalking horses to mask other people's economic interests. What kind of thinking could that unlock, not only for helping get them paid, but also for helping us unlock some of the culture that's lost under current approaches to copyright? And so when we first started talking about introducing authors' rights uh, into Australia, we got a lot of pushback from the publishing industry. And the, the, the main in the vibe of it was, don't worry your little heads about that because it's all taken care of by the contracts. And so a big piece of the work on this project is to figure out what those contracts actually say um, and and use that to tell us whether there is a case for sort of universal baseline minimum uh, author rights that you find in more than half of the countries in the world, but very uh, little in the Anglosphere. So we have no statutory author's rights in Australia or New Zealand, uh, Canada has one ancient one that's from uh, 1911 um, and which doesn't work particularly well in the digital paradigm. The US, of course, has just that one statutory termination right. The UK doesn't have anything at all. Um, and, of course, you know, even in, in Canada and the US where you do have one narrow time-based uh, reversion right, everything outside of that is governed by the contracts as well. So what we see is that all of the issues that are faced by authors in Australia are also faced, uh, we discovered, by authors in the US, Canada, the UK. And we worked quite closely with a bunch of authors associations on this paper as we went through. And, and we um, 
was really interesting to see how universal the problems are that we're talking about in this research. Well, so I, sorry to say, like, it seems to me like one of the big problems that you're talking about in this paper is the termination right or the sort of difference in termination rights and how to sort of understand that in context. And I wonder if for listeners, you could sort of talk about what a termination right is and sort of where they exist, where they don't exist, and what it means for them to exist in one place or not exist in another place. Yeah, sure. So termination rights, uh, or reversion rights we call them, are ways in which creators can get back copyrights or bits of copyrights that they've assigned to someone else. Okay, so usually a creator will assign all or part of the rights in their works to an investor in order to get their work produced and distributed and available for audiences to buy. Now, reversion rights can be statutory or they can be contractual. Statutory reversion rights exist, like I said, in more than half of the world's countries, which is kind of incredible, Um, and they can take all different kinds of form. So there's uh, more than 50 countries have a statutory out-of-print right. So if the book goes out of print, then the author can exercise that right and reclaim their copyrights, after which time perhaps they might, um, uh, you know, exploit it in a different way. They might license it to a new publisher or they might uh, exploit it themselves, convert it to an e-book and uh, sell it internationally online via Amazon. There's a whole bunch of other varieties as well. So there's time-based reversion rights, as you have in uh, the United States, uh, which is you can exercise this 35 years after rights transfer. You can have them in Canada where it applies automatically uh, 25 years after the author dies. So the authors themselves don't benefit from that, but the idea is perhaps their heirs might. Um, You can have uh, rights to reclaim unexploited bits of copyright. So we call those use it or lose it rights. So, for example, I think in Spain and Lithuania, uh, you've got the right to reclaim. Uh, it, say, say you've assigned your or licensed your copyright over all languages, but then after a certain amount of time, the publisher hasn't actually exercised it in all languages. In those countries, you've got the right to reclaim the unexploited language rights. And so you've got sort of almost an infinite variety of possibilities. You might want to reclaim Um, unused territories, you might want to reclaim your rights in the event that the publisher goes into liquidation. Uh, There's all kinds of situations where you might want to reclaim your rights. And author societies uh, for years now, um, many years now, have been really pushing for baseline minimum reversion rights so that all authors know what the position is and to make up for the fact that very often the contracts are inadequate. And that's what we knew anecdotally before we did this research. We had author societies complaining um, that the, the contracts were often, you know, they might be missing an out-of-print clause or a, another important reversion clause, um, that they were not evolving very quickly to keep up with changing circumstances in the publishing industry, most particularly that they were not keeping up with the digital paradigm. You know, out-of-print clauses and other reversion rights were much less important before the digital era because when print publication was your only way of making a book available um, and a book went out of print, 
it was relatively unlikely that you would be able to get a new contract for print publication because the costs of doing that were just so high and books depreciate really quickly. Uh, In the digital era, obviously, it's really different. You've got so many more options available for making that book available. You can uh, digitize it. You can sell it online. You could license it into libraries uh, for e-lending. You can um, use very cheap digital print-on-demand services that make even a single hard copy um, a feasible uh, print run, which is you know wildly different to how it used to be. Um, and we're even starting to hear that there are adva- with advances in um, machine translation, people are starting to use that, particularly for nonfiction books, to reduce the cost of having them translated because you can uh, get a roughish translation done automatically and then you just need to hire the professional translator to tidy that up. So it's cheaper and it makes it more feasible and we're already hearing about people doing that. But to take advantage of all of these exciting possibilities for authors to make their neglected books available, they have to have the rights to be able to get their copyrights back in the first place. And that's what reversion is all about. It's got enormous potential for helping authors uh, improve their economic outcomes from their books, Uh, but it's also got potential to open up new investment possibilities for investors like publishers who might might be interested in having another go at these books uh, after their first uh, flush of life is over. And it's also got huge potential for improving access to knowledge and culture, because if we get those books available again, then people can read them. Uh, And if they're locked up, then they can't. So reversion is one of the things that I'm absolutely most excited about. And we've been working on this project, really focusing on what, how can we rethink reversion rights um, for about two and a half years now? Mm. Well, so Rebecca, I mean, from a U.S. perspective, I think a lot of people think about termination or aversion primarily in relation to who gets to claim the profits from a copyrighted work of authorship. But, I mean, what I find really interesting about your work is that you're suggesting that that's the wrong way to frame the, the question. There's more going on there. And I wonder if you could just really kind of, like, for a moment, like, highlight that issue and like why is that the wrong way to frame the question well I I think well first of all when I speak to American scholars about this and they do immediately think about the termination right I think that's misguided because that right has so little use compared to contractual reversion uh, right. So we've, uh, we're doing some work at this at the moment we're actually doing a whole of universe study of the US termination right we've been gathering the data from Uh, the copyright registers uh, database. And we found that, you know, there's really relatively few times that the section 203 or 3 or 4 termination right have actually been exercised. And I don't want to give you a number because we're still doing the sort of the the data wrangling at the moment. But for for books, uh, that the, the, uh, the author has exercised the the termination right post 1976. Like we're we're talking about like very very few indeed, um, and we're talking about only or, or predominantly you know the the most famous authors and the authors whose books still have a lot of value, but there are countless thousands of other books 
where authors have reverted the rights, but they've done so either um, via the contracts or just by asking for permission. And that's where that's where reversion really is happening. Um, you don't need to have a lawyer or um, jump through really complicated hoops to exercise your contractual reversion rights. Uh, ideally, the contract will be clear and you'll be able to understand them without having to get professional advice. And there are just so many thousand times that people... So that's really where all of the action is um, in the, the reversion world. It's happening in the contracts, but it's really difficult to actually figure out what's going on there because they're operating in the shadow of the law. Very often, um, they're, they're fragmented. They're held by you know many many different authors. They might have confidentiality clauses, um, and they uh, you know they they obviously you want to see how they change over time. But working out how to access that is really difficult. Um, and so I'd, I'd I'd like to get people first of all thinking about when they think about reversions potential. It doesn't have to be uh, a U.S. style termination right that there's lots of other possibilities for getting these rights freed up and that we should be paying attention to what's going on in the contracts, even though it's difficult to actually find out what that is. Hmm. Well, so, I mean, my impression has always been that there's been this sort of theoretical idea that authors and publishers can just contract for whatever rights they want, and that's great, and that'll be, you know, economically efficient, right? And the efficient market theory says that, like, people will arrive at, you know, the appropriate arrangement just automatically because, you know, everyone knows what that arrangement is supposed to look like. But your your paper suggests that might not be the case. And so I wonder if you could talk for a moment about what these con- these contractual provisions actually look like and why they don't seem to sort of maximize the values that we think copyright policy ought to be focusing on. Yeah, right. Um, Look, if we think about what's efficient for the publisher, their interest is to take as broad a rights as possible for the longest time possible and then figure out from there, they don't know in advance which book is going to be a hit and which rights they're going to be able to sell or that they can even use. And so what we'd been told by author societies is that they were taking, you know, very broad rights. Um, and so let me tell you, like, let me tell you a little bit, maybe I can tell, introduce the study and then a little bit about what we found about how broad the rights are. And you can see, um, you can see then why revision rights get so important. So what we did, uh, we obviously, we had to tackle this problem that it's really tricky to get access to, um, author contracts and particularly to be able to follow them over the time horizon we were interested in because we really wanted to see how they evolved uh, as we entered the digital era. And what we managed to do is that we got wind that the Australian Society of Authors had an archive of contracts that they had been holding on to ever since they first started giving advice to authors in 1960. And we were able to access that archive, which gave us a uh, access to contracts dated 1960 all the way through to 2014. And so our, we've analysed 145 contracts and you can have a look at our sampling methodology and all of the details in the written paper. But let me just give you some headline, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> some headline results about what we actually found in terms of what are the rights that publishers took. So we found that 83% of the ones that we looked at took rights for at least the entire term of copyright. 
right? Uh, and that included there was some that also took the entire term plus any future period of copyright. That was almost 20% of the contracts that we looked at. So those publishers also got the benefit of that 20-year term extension uh, that was rolled out um, throughout most of the English-speaking world. Um, and they also tended to take really broad rights when it came to territories and languages, right? So let me just grab the, the worldwide figure. Um, the uh, Sorry, I meant to have this exactly at hand and then I was got very excited about another point and had a look at that. Um, we, we found that... Um, <clears throat> Overwhelmingly, the contracts took exclusive licenses, um, so that was about 79%. But then another 17% of contracts purported to take the whole copyright. Um, and, you know, we get told actually by publishers that, that they never do that. In fact, we found that they did so particularly for educational and academic books, but also for trade books, trade fiction and nonfiction and children's books. Um, and one of the really interesting things that we found around this and when we were looking at the rights that were taken is that publishers seem to sometimes not even really understand what they've actually taken. Um, so, you know, they, they might take the entire copyright, but then there would be other terms that suggested they didn't really understand what they had actually done. Um, so, uh, you know, we had contracts that, that gave the publisher both the copyright and the exclusive license to print, publish and sell the book. And that's obviously superfluous because you don't need those rights if the publisher's already got the copyright. Um, and then we had another contract that said the, the copyright's the property of the publisher, but then it had two copyright symbols and one with the author's name and one with the publisher's name, so, sort of suggesting that they both owned it. Um, and then we also saw a lot of evidence of, of confusion about how licenses worked. Um, and I think my favourite here was um, a 2012 contract that granted the publisher an irrevocable perpetual exclusive licence and then said it was terminable on 10 days' notice. Um, but obviously it, it can be irrevocable or terminable, but it, it can't be both. So we, we really saw in when we were looking at what was taken, we saw these inconsistencies suggesting that publishers maybe lacked understanding about the legal impact of their own contractual terms. Uh, then, as I said, most contracts took rights in all territories. So 83% of the contracts took worldwide rights. Um, then um, most contracts took rights in all languages. So that was that was about half of the contracts. Um, and then, uh, again, we found a lot of ambiguities here. So sometimes we, we couldn't even discern which languages the publisher had been granted rights over. Um, even though we tried really, really hard to figure it out. Um, and a bunch of them, uh, 29%, didn't even attempt to specify the languages. They just left that, um, they just left that open. Uh, and and uh, the duration of contract as well, I should I mentioned that a whole bunch of contracts didn't even mention how long the contract would last for. 11% didn't specify the term. And obviously, um, that's really problematic because uh, authors need to be able to figure that out in order to, to know what their rights are. So when we look at how broad those rights are, we can see that reversion clauses become really, really important. We see that publishers routinely take really broad rights just in case they end up needing them. But in the overwhelming majority of cases, they don't actually need them. They don't exploit the book in every single language. They don't exploit it in every single territory worldwide. 
um, or and and they stop exploiting it really soon. So the thing about books is that they depreciate really quickly, and so for almost all books, the commercial life is completely over uh, within five years. Most books, it's within two years, and so we see from that when they take such broad rights, but they're not actually going to use them, that authors need to have reversion rights as a way of um, reclaiming them and having a chance at exploiting them to make some more money. And, and when we're talking about authors, you know, a small uh, amounts of money can still be really valuable and really appreciated and help them create more works, but also to uh, have a better chance of having some of that culture made available to other for other people to access in the future. So that's why contracts are so incredibly important because they're so broad um, and that's why we wanted to have a look at what the reversion rights actually provided within them. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, just to drive a finer point there, Rebecca, I mean, I wonder if you could just like, like explain to readers exactly what happens when contract rights sort of as they currently exist are just enforced as they're written and, you know, why that should be troubling, right? Because as you say, there, there, you know, there's questions about who's going to profit, but it really seems like there's questions about access as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's two things. First of all, I should say that the contract terms are not always enforced as written. Um, and publishers will sometimes tell me, oh, yes, sure, it says that in the contract, but I would never enforce that. Right. Um, and now this kills me. Right. So I, I want them and my, I, I just want to shake them and say, well, why don't you write in the contract what you think it should say? Uh, because while um, it's true that sometimes publishers will allow an author to reclaim their rights, even if the, the contract doesn't provide for that, lots of them don't. And that's a lot of the work that the contract advisors at the U.S. Authors Guild and the U.K. Society of Authors and Australia's um, um, the Australian Society of Authors are working on all the time. They're working on um, uh, cases where authors are trying to understand their rights in order to reclaim their copyrights and publishers are resisting them. Um, and it it's also becomes really important because sometimes uh, it might be that you sign a contract with someone who says, well, I'm never going to hold you to anything, but then they get bought by somebody else or there's a change of management. And then, you know, so so what the the contract says does really matter. And the problem is when the contract is enforced um, per its terms, we end up with this enormous amount of unnecessary cultural waste, right? And we're seeing that in real time right now, real time right now with this uh, project that I'm working on in collaboration with authors and libraries here in Australia, where we are, uh, we've got funding, seed funding at least, to uh, digitize a whole bunch of culturally important Australian books and license them into public libraries. So these are books where the author or their heir has exercised their out-of-print clause, they've reclaimed their rights, but they don't necessarily have the 700 odd dollars that it takes to digitize a book. And of course, they don't have access to any di real um, uh, distribution channels to get it into libraries. And so that's what we're putting, that's what we're creating, that we're creating that infrastructure as part of this project. We're going to, uh, we've got funding from libraries to digitize some of these books, and then they're going to license them and make them available to um, everybody who has access to a public library in a whole bunch of Australia. And so that's super exciting. But then you see how difficult it is for some of these authors to actually reclaim their rights. 
So even though they are not, they haven't seen any royalties for years, uh, even though the book is no longer available, um, when they ask for their rights back and the publisher says, well, no, we don't want you to have your rights back and the contract says uh, that you can't. So it's not that it's benefiting the publisher to hold on to the work, but it is harming society and it's harming the author for them to be able to do so in those circumstances. And that's what we're really interested in changing with this work. Mm. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what your empirical studies suggest that we should want termination or reversion lights to look like in order to kind of maximize the ability of authors to make their works available and consumers to have works available to them. Okay, yeah. So let me just first explain um, what we found. So we've, I've talked about the really broad rights that the publishers took, but let me tell you what we found for the the reversion rights, and then I'll get into well, you know, what's the room for improvement here? And believe me, there's plenty. Um, so we looked at that the, that whole span of contracts to say, well, what what kind of reversion rights exist here? Uh, we found that most of them had out of print rights, which was really encouraging. Eighty seven percent had out of print rights. Um, but then, uh, those rights were really unsatisfactory. What's important to understand here is that the formulations, the acceptable formulations for out of print have changed over time. That's one of the things that's really, um, been a marked shift with the advent of digital. It used to be that a contract would say, and we saw this heaps in the 1960s ones, that the author can reclaim their rights after a certain amount of notice when their book is out of print. Now, author societies have been complaining since the earliest that we found was dated 1968, that this is just hopelessly fuzzy, right? That there's a lot of different um, ways of interpreting that um, and that authors need more certainty about when their book is actually out of print. So author societies have for, you know, half a century now been advocating that out-of-print clauses be drafted in a way that provide objective criteria for determining when a book is out of print. So the kinds of things that they advocate for is, you know, a book is out of print where it's sold less than 200 copies in the previous calendar year, or the author has received, say, less than $500 in royalties, mechanisms like that. So we fully, uh, and and of course, these these objective criteria became much more important when we entered into the digital era because, um, the old form of clauses, you know, they would say a, a book is um, can be reverted if it's out of print or if it's not available in any form, right? Well, of course, when you sh- shift to digital, then books are uh, potentially always going to be available as an ebook, say, or via print on demand, but without being meaningfully available, without uh, requiring that same kind of investment that a publisher was required to make in order to put a fresh print run in. And so what authors were saying is that you can't, publishers should not be able to hold on to the book just because they're technically making it available. That fundamentally changes the bargain between us. They should only be uh, allowed to hold on to the rights where the book is still selling and there's evidence that the publisher is still supporting it. So that made these uh, clauses of defining out of print with objective criteria much, much more important. And so we really expected to see a big progression as we moved through the contracts, as they got more recent, um, 
and a much more use of those uh, those objective criteria. But in fact, we saw very little of that. Um, of the 145 contracts we looked at, a full 88% had their out-of-print clauses based on technical availability clauses. And just 7% had it based on objective criteria like the number of sales or the amount of royalties. Um, and a 5% um, based those clauses entirely on the publisher's discretion. The publisher got to decide when the book was out of print, which is kind of remarkable as well. Uh, so then we also found um, there were lots of other lots of other evidence about how outdated contracts were. We still found out of print clauses that required authors to pay to reclaim their rights, which was you know it's it's a really shocking thing for um, our for publishing sens- sensibilities in the 2020s to hear about that um, because this is a, like a historic holdover um, from the pre-photolithographic print era, but we still found those um, in contracts, you know, well after that it was of historical interest only. Uh, what was really, really striking, though, is around use it or lose it rights. Remember I talked about those at the beginning. Um, they're the kinds of rights that would allow you, to, if you're an author, to reclaim your unexploited language rights or your unexploited territory rights. Uh, but these were really, really rare we found that there were only, I think, about six contracts that had six or eight contracts that had any use it or lose it clause at all. Um, so we we really saw here that the, it's not all taken care of by the contracts, that there is a need for authors to have additional protections because we can't rely on contracts as the sole or virtually sole repository of author rights, right? Um we found that they didn't universally incorporate even the most commonly accepted reversion rights, right? Uh, We found that they were incredibly slow to evolve in response to changing industry norms. Um, We found they can be ambiguous and poorly drafted, which makes it unnecessarily time-consuming and expensive for authors to to understand and enforce their rights. Um, And, you know, really quite shockingly that publishers are imposing terms without really understanding their legal significance. But the thing that is a problem above all of this is that even if none of these deficiencies existed, even if the contracts were absolute paragons, perfection um, about the exact kind of clause that should exist at the time the contract was signed, their sheer length makes them inappropriate to be the sole repository of author rights. Um, If you think about it, a young author in good health today might sign a contract that could last until 2150 or beyond, right? So it doesn't matter how well that contract captures the moment right now. It's still, we can't expect the drafters of those contracts to predict what that world is going to look like. But by making them, you know, the sole or virtually the sole source of author rights, that's effectively what we're asking them to do. Um, And so, what we think should happen is we think that there should be um, minimum baseline author reversion rights that are on top of um, things like a time-based reversion right, like you've got in the US and Canada, but that um, enshrine baseline protections. And what we think that those should cover are things like um, allowing rights to revert where books are no longer being meaningfully exploited. So uh, clear out-of-print rights that uh, do have appropriate objective criteria. 
we should see use it or lose it rights, um, which are so important for unlocking new investment and revenue opportunities. And they, they should cover things like unexploited languages, unexploited territories, unexploited formats. Um, we should have rights to revert where publishers enter liquidation, which were in some of these contracts. I understand in the US, actually, even if they're in the contract, that that's not enforceable. Um, and that's something certainly that the Authors Guild in the US has been wanting to get reintroduced as a statutory right. Um, I'd also love to see reversion uh, rights for failure to pay royalties or to provide reasonably transparent royalty statements. That's another huge problem uh, in publishing. And I think that uh, it hasn't been uh, Im- improved very quickly. And I think we would see much more rapid improvement if the authors had the rights um, to reclaim their copyrights in the event that that they didn't get their royalties or their, their royalty statements were incoherent. Um, and of course, I think we should really think carefully about time-based reversions, um, similar to what already exists in the US and Canada for other Anglosphere countries. Now, that's that's a lot, uh, a lot to take in. Um, I would mention that all of those rights that I mentioned already exist in some form or another in some country in the world. Uh, so none of them would be unprecedented. And they also exist in, in uh, you know, very widely in author contracts today. Uh, so most, con- most publishers have finally come to the party and updated their contracts so that as of today, they do have objective criteria in those out-of-print clauses. Um, we're told... I'm told, you know, uh, by many of the literary agents that I've interviewed and authors' societies that if an author tries to negotiate a use-it-or-lose-it clause, uh, then usually the publisher will allow them to. So these things are all kind of possible. It's just that the contracts do a terrible job of making sure that all authors can benefit. And uh, it it, it makes sense, right? Publishers uh, tend to be really, really good at publishing books, that's a different skill set to being really, really good at drafting contracts. Uh, and it's really, like I said, not for them to be in the role of having to figure out what would be a fair contract for the next 100 years. And that's why I think there's really a role for these baseline minimum rights that that should be enshrined ideally in regulations, I think. We don't want to have to go right and change the Copyright Act every single time there's an update in the publishing industry. But we could envisage a situation where you have uh, regulations that are updated in conjunction with all stakeholders from the industry and that have an evolving um, a smorgasbord of reasonable baseline minimum protections for authors. And that's what I would love to see come out of this. Mm. Well, so Re- Rebecca, I mean, it seems to me pretty clear why this makes a lot of sense from a copyright policy perspective and also why it would be beneficial to a lot of authors. Um, But I wonder if you could talk just briefly about why publishers should accept this kind of change. And if also, like, you could talk a little bit about why we should think that this is a kind of change that wouldn't just benefit authors, but might also benefit the public instead of the purposes of copyright writ large. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we can very we can very easily see the benefits for authors. Uh, for publishers, I think we can pretty easily see the benefits for them too. Uh, once we look into it, although the the picture is a little bit more nuanced, and I think there would likely be winners and losers. 
you've got we've got now um, five massive publishers that control uh, a huge proportion of uh, the world's the English speaking world's uh, fiction and nonfiction titles, uh, and they do pretty well um, from uh, making passive income from their backlist. So a lot of the books have been digitized. They sit there quietly. Um, they tick over a little bit. They sell a few copies. They're not having any sort of promotional push uh, or anything like that. But there is enough of them that that makes up a really valuable revenue stream for those publishers. Now, if we had uh, more effective reversion rights, then authors might have the opportunity to say, well, you you either need to do more to give that book a push and get more copies sold, or I might take it to this other publisher uh, and they're interested in doing that. And I think that there's huge potential, particularly for the, the smaller independent publishers, to pick up books that are important and breathe new life into them uh, in and benefit not only from that passive revenue but from actually actively investing in those books. That's a benefit for those publishers who get those new investment opportunities. It's also a benefit for the author who gets their book um, to be read more and sold more. Then for the public, I think this is really a no-brainer, right? We have a lot of culture that's unnecessarily thrown away by copyright rights that outlast their owner's interest in them. And that uh, example I just gave of this project we're putting together to license out-of-print Australian books into public libraries across the country is just a great example of that. These are books that were no longer of interest to the publisher. So the, the, the author has managed, in most cases already, to reclaim their, their rights. And the libraries are so excited about getting these books into their collections, right? They are putting up money to digitize them um, from already really scarce resources. And they're doing this in the middle of a viral pandemic, which shows, again, how incredibly important it is to them to be able to provide access to that kind of literary heritage. So for the public, um, having laws that enable authors to reclaim those rights so that we can make it more broadly available, so that we can license it to schools and universities and libraries, so that we can get those books read and those authors paid. All of those are just so critically important. And I really see, you know, in, when we talk about copyright, we're often really tied up because we feel that we're stuck with the burn and trips conventions. There's not very much that we can do to sort of radically reform them. And sometimes it, it feels like people feel a bit hopeless about that. But another thing that's really, really interesting about reversion is that burn and trips don't say anything about copyright ownership. And so that gives us an awful lot of um, rain to run through in order to come up with laws that are not only fit for purpose in, in the digital era, but that help us as serve those uh, really crucial aims of rewarding authors and ensuring widespread access to knowledge and culture. Well, Rebecca, I got to say, I mean, as always, it was a huge pleasure talking to you. I think it's a great new project and I'm super excited about these ideas and I hope to see them implemented in many different places in the near future. 
Thank you so much. I look forward to maybe popping back in for episode 1073. <laughs> Every 500 episodes we need for Becca. <laughs> Every 500 episodes, like clockwork. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 